0: Thank you, Encore, for that ministry of music. Tonight we're continuing on with uh, Ruth chapter 3. So take out your Bibles if you haven't already. Continuing through this series. And um, Pastor Reed did say this morning he's going to be returning um, next Sunday morning. However, I was talking with him and I assume it would probably be best for me to finish this series since we only have one chapter left. So I will be finishing that out in the evening next week. So we'll... At least be able to finish it out, not just leave you hanging there, and uh, and then I'll be done. Okay? Sorry to extend that out, but I guess since we've come this far, might as well finish it, right? Route 3. This is an exciting chapter. This is... This is I'm going to warn you, this is going to be one of those where it's just really fascinating to me. And we're going to spend a lot of time understanding the story, interpreting it, and the application is going to come at the end. So I apologize for that up front. But it's one of those where you really have to take the time to understand just what's going on before you get to the application, because there are a ton of bad applications that are drawn from Ruth chapter three. And if you don't take the time to really look at it, then you're kind of out of luck. Plus, you know. Oftentimes people are wondering, what's the application? What's the significance? Sometimes it's just beneficial to study the Bible for its own sake. It's God's word. You know, understanding it has value on its own beyond the, well, what does this mean for me? Sometimes you just learn about God. You learn about what he's doing in this case. So the fact that a lot of that's pushed to the end, I apologize in advance. But hopefully you'll find this just as exciting as I did as I was studying it. I was scratching my head over this for a while and in the end, just found it to be a fascinating passage. Um, Ruth 3, it's on page 200 of your pew Bible. Um, I don't know what page it is on your Bible. You'll have to figure that out. Uh, But, uh, by the way, did you notice I think it was last week I said that uh, Philemon was located on page 1,168. It was a typo in the bulletin in the morning. I didn't even catch it. So I was just like, yeah, turn to page 1. There is no 1,000. I think it ends at like page 300. So tonight, turn to page 3,722. And That's where we're at. Okay. no, I'm just kidding. Um, It's an interesting chapter. Uh, Let me start out uh, with this question. What's the strangest thing that you have ever woken up and found in your bed? Okay. what's the strangest thing you've ever woken up and found in your bed? Anything odd? How many interesting stories about that? I I pose this question to Facebook because I just figured I'll get lots of fun responses from this. I wanted to see what's out there. You know, I said, you can help me out with my intro for Sunday night. And here's some of the answers I got. Um, Jake Cruz senior said, uh, he, he saw a cockroach in his bed back when they were in Grenada. That's interesting. Had another friend who said the same thing, two inch cockroach that time was crawling on his hand. He tried to shake it off, wouldn't come off. So he threw it across the room, then squished it, said it made a loud crunching sound, you know, um, Ruth Ann Gray said uh, she, back a long time ago she had a hamster that was crawling up her pant leg. Okay, um, feel, <laughs> pet hamster. That would be interesting. Ray Bertalette, uh, church planner in our denomination, uh, said he had a friend that found a brown tree snake in his bed. He woke up to see that slithering by his legs. Can you imagine? Uh, I don't know what I'd do there. I'd probably jump like, you know, a thousand feet up in the air. Uh, got a few people. I think Kendra Arnick said stink bugs. I've had that stink bug right in your face, you know, especially during this past time. I don't know how they get in my house, but they're just everywhere, you know, and uh, they like to sneak up on you and then make things smell. So all these different things, maybe you can tell me afterwards if you have something that trumps all that. OK, brown tree snakes, pretty tough one to beat, though. Um, Although even if that's the case for you, I bet none of you have had an encounter as strange as an odd as Boaz's. Boaz went to sleep one night and he woke up in the middle of the night and found a woman laying at his feet. Okay, and that's pretty much what chapter three is about. Okay, that's that's it. All right. So for whatever strange story you might have, I think Boaz's story pretty much trumps yours. Okay, and uh, and so we're going to read about this. And, you know, questions that come to your mind are what's the woman doing in his bed? Why is she there? Well, how'd she get there? You know, why is she there? What's he going to do? Um, all very good questions for us to to study tonight. Um, now I will say this off the bat. Okay, as uh, this happens, um, both Ruth and Boaz manage to keep their integrity in this situation. However, it causes itself to be uh, nothing untoward happens. Okay, no misconduct, nothing immoral goes on. So we can at least breathe a sigh of relief in that regard. But still, what what is going on? It's scratching. Your head as you read this one. And as I picture, if I were Boaz in this situation, um, you'd wake up and you'd be like, oh, there's a woman there. And in the words of our teens, you might say, "Uh, this is kind of awkward. Okay, teens love to use the the word awkward a lot. I found that out. Uh, I think it was Heather Bickle taught me this symbol means awkward turtle. I don't know why it's a turtle. They said whenever you're in an awkward situation, just do this. It's a turtle. He's upside down. He's awkward. I don't understand. Uh, that was a few years ago. Um, anyway, I don't know if anybody does that anymore. Awkward situation. Wakes up and that's what he finds. Well, before we get started, let's just review. Okay, we said in week one that the story began with a person named Naomi. She was from Bethlehem and lived during the time of the judges and was married to this man named Elimelech. And if you were here last week, you got a bonus lesson on how you can remember that name. I won't go over that again. She had two sons, but then a famine spread over the land of Judah. And so the family had to relocate to this land of Moab. And her sons married two Moabite women. But then tragedy strikes Um, from uh, the beginning. Naomi's husband dies and then both of her sons die as well. And that just leaves Naomi alone with her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Now, without husbands to provide for them and protect them, uh, they're pretty much in a bad situation back then in that culture. And so Naomi kind of evaluates her her situation and says, if you you want to have any chance of having a good life, go back home to your parents. By all means, you're still young. Get remarried. You can be provided for. My life's bitter. It doesn't have to be that way for you. And she argues with them for a little bit. And then after a little bit of arguing, uh, you know, she finally convinces Orpah and Orpah leaves. She goes back to the land of Moab. Naomi's planning to go back to Bethlehem because the famine is gone now. It's it's over. But Ruth decides to stay. And she clings to her and she says, no, your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And so they go back to Bethlehem. Now, last week, uh, we talked about chapter two. And uh, once they're in Judah, Ruth decides that, you know, we still need a way to provide for ourselves. So she's going to go out into the uh, barley fields and glean, uh, try and pick up some of the grain that's dropped from the harvesters as they walk along. And I said, that's not stealing. You don't have to be concerned about that. That was actually a lawful thing to do. She asked permission to do that. And also in the law of Moses, it permitted people to do that. Poor people, the land could glean, pick up the leftover stuff. Um, And actually, farmers were instructed to kind of leave some of that, not to go back and pick it up. To provide for the poor in the land. So that was legitimate. She was allowed to do that. Uh, But before long, the owner of the field came and noticed Ruth. And as it turned out, this man was Boaz, a relative of Elimelech's and also a God-fearing man. And when he heard about Ruth's devotion to Naomi, he not only allowed her to continue to glean, but he also gave her special preference. He instructed his workers not to touch her or harass her. He even allowed her to sit and eat with his workers um, as they ate dinner together. And so he looked out for her and protected her. Now, when Ruth returned home to Naomi at the end of chapter two, obviously Naomi knew something was up because she came back with this huge amount of grain that you wouldn't expect to get just when you're out gleaning in the fields, picking up scraps here and there. And then so Ruth tells her who it was that she met. And Naomi immediately knows who this is. She's apparently really familiar with the family. And she says, this is Boaz. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. This is a good thing. This means that if he desired to, according to the law of Moses, he could marry her, claim her property, claim her family as his own to kind of rescue her from her desperate situation since her husband had died. And and when that happens, a close relative was allowed to go and do that and marry this widow so that life wouldn't be so bitter and hard for her. He could choose to redeem her. But there were several men who would have fit into this category, several close relatives. It doesn't say he's the only one. It just says he's a kinsman redeemer. But this is a good thing because obviously we're hoping as readers that he'll be the one because he's a good man. He's a godly man. He's pretty well off. And, uh, you know, and he admires Ruth for her devotion for all the right reasons. OK, and so that's where chapter two ends. Now we're into chapter three. This is interesting. It's going to be fun uh, when. All that happens. Um, Boaz allows her to continue to glean in the fields and time passes. But, you know, eventually time enough time passes that Naomi desires that more should be done for her daughter-in-law. She wants her to be provided for, protected and cared for. So it's good that they can now glean in this field. But ultimately, Naomi sees that he's a, a possible kinsman redeemer. It would be great if they could get together, if she could be provided for. Um, But how's that going to happen? Well, she says in verses one and two, uh, follow along as I read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whom uh, whose maids you were? Uh, Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So Naomi recognizes Ruth is still young enough to get remarried. It's a little bit it's probably out of the question for her at this point for Naomi. Naomi is older, but but Ruth is younger. And so uh, she's trying to work to get her married in this way. And now it seems like God has sovereignly allowed Ruth to meet Boaz, who could potentially be this redeemer for her. However, the problem is weeks have passed um, and Boaz hasn't really made a move. He hasn't really said anything about this. I mean, she's in good standing with him. But beyond that, he hasn't mentioned anything about this redeemer thing. And that could be for a number of reasons. Number one, it could be because he doesn't know about it. Uh, Maybe he's not aware that he's a close relative. Or it could be that he does know, but he's not really sure. Or maybe he's not interested. We don't we don't really know. It doesn't tell us what the situation is. But from Naomi's standpoint, okay, nothing's happened here. We got to get things moving. We got to work to make this happen. So she begins to set a plan in order. Naomi's interest in this matter is in keeping with the culture of that day. So some people would kind of look down negatively on her for having this kind of interest, this kind of mindset. I don't think that's the case um, because often in Old Testament times, marriage was arranged by parents. Okay, And already we know that Ruth uh, I'm sorry, that, that her husband is gone. Naomi's husband is gone. So it would make sense as a mother figure for her to have this kind of concern for Ruth. It wouldn't be unusual to have that concern. Um, again, we said some weeks have passed from chapter two to chapter three. Um, and we know this. I didn't say how we know this. We know this from chapter three, verse two, says that Boaz was going out to thresh barley. That means the harvest uh, had come to an end. And so now we're in the the period of time where they were threshing what had been harvested. So um, we know some period of time had passed. And so that's why Naomi is deciding to act in this particular time. This is where it gets interesting, because while I said it was normal for Naomi to be interested in Ruth's prospects for marriage, what follows, I don't think is normal. What she chooses to do, her actions that she chooses to take don't seem to be the usual type. They seem to be a little bit abnormal in my thinking. Um, We shall see in the next few verses that Naomi's going to try to take matters into her own hands, trying to bring Ruth and Boaz together in a way that I think is not altogether typical. Okay, so let's read on, see what she tries to do. And starting in the middle of verse two to verse four, we read, Behold, Boaz winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Verse three. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to this man until he's finished eating and drinking. It shall be that when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. All right. So as I was coming to that, the end of that verse, you can kind of see where this is starting to get a little weird. okay? and I don't think it's just because we're in 21st century America and that was back then. It's starting to get a little strange. Um, Commentators go in all sorts of directions over this, over what Naomi is commanding Ruth to do here. Um, Some try to say, you know, that what Ruth is being told to do was a custom of the day. Okay, so they're trying to explain this. What's going on? Why is she being told to go lay down by this person's bed, uncover his feet and lie down and ask him what he wants to do? Um, Some try to make sense of it by saying that this is some sort of custom back in that day, that when you go and lay down at somebody's bed, that was the way that you kind of propose for marriage by uncovering the feet. Okay, that sounds all well and good, except for the life of me, I could not find. An example of that anywhere in the Bible or in secular literature anywhere. Um, That would be a great theory if it had any kind of substance behind it. But I don't I don't see that. Okay, so um, I don't I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that kind of solution. I don't think it's a custom. I don't think it symbolizes anything. It's just weird. Okay, so what can we say for certain then about. Verses three and four. Because another thing commentators do is really speculate a lot about this, and it's really you don't want to do that because we don't really know why. But what we want to do is just examine the facts, okay? Just the just the facts, ma'am. Well, verses three and four. The first thing we can see, okay, if we're just trying to observe what's there. Naomi tells Ruth to look and dress her best, okay. So that we know for sure. Uh, Verse one, or I'm sorry, uh, the first thing. Number one that she tells her to do is wash and anoint herself, and two, put on her best clothes. Okay. Now, on one hand, that seems natural. Okay. Consider what Ruth has been doing. She's not very rich. Um, What she has to do to survive is go out in the hot sun, um, you know, pick up grain after these people, work day and night, uh, pretty long hours. You imagine she probably smells. Okay. (laughs) That's just the fact of the matter. Okay. So. Getting dressed, getting washed, putting on, uh, you know, some sort of perfume, not a bad idea, okay? Especially if you are ultimately going to go ask a man if he will be your kinsman redeemer, all right? So I wouldn't necessarily fault her for for saying all those things. That seems like a normal thing. She's just saying, wash yourself, put on this perfume, put on your best clothes. Couldn't hurt, right, to to be able to do that, okay? Um, And then what follows after that... um, well, hold on. Before I move on to that, um, something that popped into my mind, as, as she was saying, get, get dressed. Let's hang on to this detail for a second. Uh, put on her best clothes. Since I had just done a series on Esther, if you recall, last year, a lot of this is starting to pop up into my head again as I'm reading this. So when it says, go put on your best clothes, put on this perfume, um, wash, um, you know, make yourself look nice, I immediately started to think of Esther, right? And doesn't that kind of pop in your head, too, when you think of Esther chapter uh, 2, actually, says this. Verse 12. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Now, when the turn of each lady came to go to the king, King Ahasuerus, after the end of twelve months under the regulations for women, for their days of beautification were completed as follows: six months of oil and myrrh, six months of spices and cosmetics for the women, etc., etc. So that's what jumped into my mind when I saw Naomi say, you know, prepare yourself in such and such a way. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's what uh, Esther had to do. Likewise, if we go further on to Esther five one, when Esther went to beg for mercy before the king. OK, that key moment in the story where she has to go before him and say, please save my people. Haman is plotting against us and she's not sure how the king's going to respond. It says in that chapter now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. Okay, You see, in both places, She's dressing up, right? Um, Made sure she looked her best in hopes of finding favor with the king. So it seems like Naomi is thinking a similar kind of thing when she tells Ruth to put on her best clothes in Ruth chapter three. That's not far fetched to say. But here is where things start to get a little bit more unusual. Back in Ruth three. Now, if Ruth was going to ask Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, which we can tell is ultimately the goal, right? That's why Naomi's interested in doing all these weird things. Um, She wants him to be the kinsman redeemer. Let's think about that for a second. If she really wanted to go and ask him, first question that popped in my mind was, why didn't she just ask him in the middle of the day? Why didn't she just say, why don't you go to him, put on your best clothes even, put on perfume, wash yourself, and go and ask him? That was was one question that was resonating in my mind a lot. Um, It would seem after we read this whole ordeal that that's ultimately what she would have needed to do anyway, because if she's seeking to ask him in secret, kind of away from everybody else so that she could have like first dibs on Boaz, it would seem that all of that's for naught anyway, because ultimately Boaz says to her, um, I have to go and ask this other man. Uh, He says, "Okay, I'll consider your request. But there's another person who's a redeemer closer than me. So I have to go and ask him. So ultimately, there is no good done by asking him in the middle of the night, because ultimately he has to rise up the next morning and go ask somebody else. So all this business about sneaking around, um, being there in the middle of the night, it doesn't make any sense and doesn't really need to take place at all. OK, but instead of asking him in broad daylight, Naomi tells Ruth to wait. And until it's dark. And then here's another strange detail to me. It says after they eat and drink um, and after everybody is asleep, um, then that's where you're to go over to him, lay down, uncover his feet and do what he tells you. OK, now, uh, this is really strange to me because it says that Ruth should wait until Boaz had eaten and drank. That's what Naomi says. She instructs her to do this, not before, but after. Again, my head just keeps going back to Esther when I read these details. Um, it's, it's curious because that's what Naomi tells her to do. Wait until he's after he's eaten and, and, and drank um, to go and ask this question. One detail that we do know from from this, uh, this event, people have asked, why is Boaz going down to the threshing floor? Why isn't he in his own house? Why is he laying by a pile of grain? And uh, one answer that is, has been shown is that oftentimes there was a party held at the time of harvest Um, that when all this harvesting was completed, it was kind of a celebration over what God had done and and how much they were able to harvest. And so it seems that that's what's taking place because it says they're celebrating. They are eating and drinking down by this threshing floor. Okay. And uh, and it's curious because then you go to verse 7 and it says later on in the story, when Boaz had eaten and drunk until his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. The the phrase I want to pay attention to is where it says, and drunk until his heart was merry. Again, I keep thinking back to Esther for parallels to this kind of language. If you go back to Esther 1, where have I heard this before? This drank wine until his heart was merry. Chapter 1 of Esther, verses 10 and 11. We think of King Ahasuerus, at least I do. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was, what? Merry with wine. This is King Ahasuerus. He commanded all of his servants and the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king and her royal crown in order to display her beauty. Okay, that's where that phrase kind of appears in Esther. And again, later on in Esther five, it says, as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king says to Esther, what's your petition for? It will be granted to you. And what's your request? Um, It seems that in Esther, Esther waits until the wine has been drank and And all that has taken place. And I think I even said back when we were doing the Esther series that, you know, in Esther's mind, it probably wasn't a bad idea. If he was going to be in any kind of good mood to be able to answer a request or to respond favorably, she might have been using this banquet, this food, this drink as a way to kind of put him in good spirits, as it were, since she knew the king was so fond of that sort of thing. And it happens again in Esther seven. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with the queen and the king said to Esther, Also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition? Okay, so three times in Esther, this occurs, this connection with wine, with the king being willing to do basically whatever it is he wants to do. And so that same kind of language appears here in uh, Ruth with Boaz. And again, it almost seems like a a very clear connection that's being made. You know, Naomi saying, wait until after the party is over, if he's going to be. At any particular uh, you know, position to accept you, it's probably going to be after that point. If you want to make your chances the best, you know, put on nice clothes, look nice, be all washed up, wait until the meal's over, wait until his heart's merry, wait until he's in a good mood to, to possibly say yes to what this difficult thing is that you're about to, to ask him. OK, and, and so there is just another curious detail about this whole thing. Lastly, and perhaps the most questionable thing that Naomi tells Ruth to do is to wait until everyone, including Boaz, is asleep. And then she tells her to sneak up and lie down next to him and uncover his feet. So we already said that that doesn't seem to make sense as far as a cultural um, practice is concerned. I'm not aware of any cultural practice as to why one would do that. Um, but also we might ask, why does Ruth need to sneak up to Boaz to do this in the middle of the night? No less when nobody else is looking, um, for one thing, um, we've already said that would have been unnecessary for her to do in verses 12 and 13 is what I was referring to earlier. That's where he says, I'm a close relative, but there's somebody else closer. You're gonna have to wait until morning anyway. But secondly, we know this business of her laying down next to him in the middle of the night. Would have been a scandalous thing because in the morning, we know that for sure, because Boaz wants to make sure nobody knows she's there. So look at verses 13 and 14 with me. I mean, we can just tell by his reaction that something's not right about this. He says, remain this night. Here's verse 13 after he's had this conversation with her. And when morning comes, if. He will redeem you. Good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Now, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before anybody could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to let that a woman came to the threshing floor. So his reaction would be just like ours. Okay. if why is a woman here in the middle of the night? You've got to get out of here before other people see this, because this is going to be a little scandalous, right, as we would expect. This is not a normal thing to happen. And so we can just tell by his reaction, by his way of trying to get her out there quietly, that this was not something that, was norm- that normally happened and that people would understand readily as to what this was about. Um, so why did Naomi have Ruth do this to Boaz? Boaz. Well, ultimately, again, we've got to avoid speculation to to some degree. The text does not tell us why. But we can certainly see that it was risky in that it put both Ruth and Boaz in a compromised position. Again, we know that because it was scandalous in its appearance. Boaz tells us that 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 very same night that this is a little risky. This is a little strange. People aren't going to understand. People are going to think something of it. And so it was you're putting two individuals there um, who aren't married, who were laying down next to each other. And that's what it was. So I don't know if Naomi thought this would somehow get Boaz to agree to be Naomi's husband, to be Ruth's husband. But whatever the case is, we can be relieved, at least that in the end, neither Ruth nor Boaz takes advantage of this situation as an opportunity to sin. Ruth simply listening to her mother-in-law did everything as she commanded And in verse eight, it happens. It says right there in verse eight in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And I read that and I think, no kidding. (laughs) Okay, if that was me, I think I'd be a little startled as well, to say the least. Okay, Uh, there'd be a lot of explaining to do. What's going on? Why are you here? Um, He goes to sleep, wakes up and there's a woman. Stranger than a snake, stranger than a squirrel or whatever else you can think of that you'd find lying in your bed. And of course, it's dark. So he doesn't know who it is. Some people get confused. They're like, why is he asking who this is? Well, it's, it's pitch black. OK. And even though he knows Ruth sort of, he doesn't know her very much. And so he still has to ask the question, who are you? And <laughs> What are you doing here? Um, and so she says, I am Ruth, your maid in verse nine. Now, we need to stop again to explain something else that's going to take place here. Um, Ruth 9, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 9. If you have an NAS, this is a little bit misleading and can cause you to misunderstand and misinterpret this verse a lot. So it's important that we take this seriously. Um, It says, spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Okay, so for people who think this is like something scandalous and even that Ruth has some part in this, This is another piece of evidence that they just kind of throw into the fire there, because it really sounds like if you're reading the NAS, she's saying, here, take your cover and cover over me, too. And now you have two people lying together in the middle of the night that shouldn't be. And it just doesn't sound right at all. Um, So you wonder what's going on. Why is she telling her to do this or telling him to do this? Well, this is where having other translations really comes in handy. And quite frankly, I don't know why the NAS and the NIV choose to translate it this way, because there's a much more obvious translation that I believe the ESV gets right. Anybody have an ESV? Just raise your hand this evening. Okay, a few of you. All right. So if you look down at your ESV or if you don't, you can just listen. Uh, Their translation of verse nine is he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You might say, well, thanks, Pastor Dave, that's no more clear. That's just as confusing. Why? Is, he a, is he an eagle? What, like, why is he spreading his wings over her? Okay. But there's a reason, and that is the literal translation of that word, wings, not covering. Um, and there's a reason why the ESV chooses it, and I think it's good reason. Go back to Ruth chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. And when I read this, it just blew my mind. It's, just, it's cool how it all connects together. Ruth chapter two. I told you this was going to be mostly study tonight, and I'm sorry, but I hope you're finding this as fascinating as I am. Okay. Ruth chapter two, 11 and 12. In this chapter, we said Boaz is uh, uh, talking to Ruth when he first learns who she is. So verse, verse 11 says, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law After the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Verse 12, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And you go, aha, that's the key right there. That helps us interpret it. So now it's not so strange that Ruth is saying this with the word wings in it, because back then he was saying, you know, I am impressed that you have left all of your family to come here to be devoted to your mother-in-law, to be here to worship our God and may God grant you comfort under whose wings you seek refuge. And she says to him, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. Would you rescue me? Would you spread your wings over me? Both. Passages are in the context of rescuing, of um, trusting, of looking to somebody for refuge. And she's saying, yes, I I have come to this land to seek refuge from the Lord. And I'm wondering, would you be that individual who would be the person I can come under their wings and, and rescue? Please rescue me in this way. And that explains then. See, then then the text starts to make more sense. It explains then why Boaz reacts the way he does in the next verse, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich nor poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask for all my people in the city. Know that you are a woman of excellence. So Boaz says, He's quite humbled and impressed that she would ask him to be her redeemer. That explains why he's so impressed. He, he says, may you be blessed of the Lord that you've, you've shown kindness to me. Okay, The kindness isn't you've asked to pull a cover over yourself. That would be weird. But instead, she's saying, would you please humbly rescue me? Would you be my kinsman redeemer? And he is quite frankly impressed because... She could have gone after any number of people. He's not the only one that fits into that description. And he knows that. And he says, you could have gone after a younger person. And see, so remember last week I said, don't picture Boaz as this like, you know, really hulking, like beautiful, like awesome looking guy, you know, like the typical romance kind of guy. I said, picture him as like an old guy, maybe the ugliest guy you can think of. All right. OK, about the ugliness, I don't really know. OK, I got to admit, it doesn't really say if he's, if he's cute or ugly or whatever, you know, as far as. Uh, you know, that's concerned. But, you know, it does say here that he is older and he acknowledges that. And he says, you know, you could have gone after somebody much younger and you instead have gone to me. And for that, you are to be praised. She is attracted to him because of his godly character, because of the, the response she got back in chapter two. And that's what draws her to him, not his age. And so he's impressed. And, and he says, I know you are a woman of excellence by the way that she's treated her mother-in-law, by the way he's seeking after him rather than a younger individual. And now, of course, this situation, I said, isn't necessarily the most ex- excellent, right, that they, that they find themselves in right now. But um, in Ruth's defense, uh, we could look back and say that wasn't entirely her plan. It was Naomi's after all. And both to Ruth's credit and to Boaz, neither of them take advantage of this compromising situation uh, they have. In fact, Ruth doesn't exactly follow Naomi's advice. She doesn't just go up to him and and do whatever he says. Instead, she kind of takes a different path when he wakes up and she takes the initiative to ask him to be her redeemer. And, And so to both of their credit, they don't take advantage of that situation. They maintain their integrity. And, of course, that's the picture we have of both of them throughout the entire book. So despite the odd way that Naomi told Ruth to go about it and the sovereignty of God, um, Boaz still did say yes to Ruth. So wrapping up, what are we to to make of this in application? Well, some people would say that the application is, you know, sometimes the the plans of God, uh, you just need to put forth a little bit of initiative to bring them about. You know, here we see an example of Naomi you know, um, God was going to work, but sometimes God's plans just take a little bit of oomph, a little bit of initiative to bring to pass. And I would say the application is the exact reverse, that God didn't work because of what Naomi did, but in spite of it. You know, nevertheless, even though she plotted and schemed in such a way that God worked despite her plans. And we find that throughout the, the, the Bible um, in, J- in Jacob's case, if you go all the way back in Genesis to Jacob. Uh, He tried to get ahead in life by stealing from his brother, stealing his birthright, stealing the blessing. Now, God intended to bless him in the end, but I don't think God intended him for it to do do it that way. Doesn't mean that God endorsed his methods of bringing that about. Same thing later on in Jacob's life when he wanted to get ahead and and take uh, some goats from from uh, Laban, uh, who he was uh, trying to get away from. And uh, he had been working for him for a long time. And he said, here, let me have some of the goats and you have some. And in that account, Jacob says, OK, that's fine. Let me have the speckled ones. And and uh, in the middle of the night, he went and stripped some poplar branches, put them down next to these goats in hopes to have them mate by these poplar b- branches, because that was the common thinking of the day. It was kind of some folklore that if you put these poplar branches by, the goats would mate and then be stronger. And sure enough, they were stronger. And Jacob got the stronger goats. And you look at that and say, Was it because he put out poplar branches that that happened? No, no, it had nothing to do with that. That was all just voodoo. That was all just, you know, popular thinking of the day, but had nothing to do with reality. God blessed him with the stronger animals. God blessed him in ways. But it doesn't mean that God endorsed his methods. And so here, I think that's the application here, that despite what Naomi tried to do, God still blessed Ruth and worked through it nonetheless. And so I think the application for us tonight is just that as we seek to uh, look ahead at what God is doing in our lives, there can often be a temptation for us to try and push it forward, to try and give God's plans a little bit of a push. And if we don't see things happening as fast as we'd want to, maybe we'd want to, you know, make, make things, cause things to move a little faster by kind of putting in our own two cents. And sometimes that can lead us to do some things that are maybe a little bit immoral. Or sometimes a little bit questionable or that would break our um, our conscience a little bit. I think that's what happened a little bit in this case with Naomi. What she tried to do to bring Ruth and Boaz together kind of led them into a compromising situation. And that wasn't really the best that could have put them really in harm's way. And it wasn't altogether typical. It wasn't what had to happen. God had led them to that point through a series of divine events. He didn't need Naomi to intervene and do something drastic and questionable to bring that last bit about. So as you think about the future and look forward to what God is doing in your life, don't be tempted to do things that would compromise your morals, that would cause you to sin, that would put you in a compromising position because you're impatient. Because you're waiting for God's will to come to be keep your integrity and trust in the Lord for the whole completion of his plan in your life and allow him to work and don't take the matters into your own hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at the story, God, we are often tempted in our own lives in various ways to kind of. Move things along a bit. And sometimes when we want to bring out a desired end, when we see the way we want our lives to go, we can uh, maybe use dishonest means to get there, dishonest uh, ways, sometimes compromising situations. And, God, I pray that we wouldn't do that. Thank you, God, that you worked in Ruth's life despite all the plans that were being plotted around her. And thank you for the way in which we see this story come to a conclusion because of your divine hand and not. Um, Mankind's intervention and so god help us to trust you and to be patient even when we have to wait for your plans To come to fruition knowing that you have brought us to where we are today and we can trust you for the end We pray this in jesus name. Amen. Thank you and you are